Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. Are you interested in advertising with the Action Catalyst? Our listeners could be hearing about your brand right here, right now. For details, shoot us an email at info at theactioncatalyst.com. Today, we are very, very excited to have as our guest, Mr. Jeff Dobines. Jeff is the president of Southwestern Investment Group. Today, Southwestern Investment Group, which works directly with the Raymond James organization as they execute trades and help families achieve their financial goals, manages more than $3 billion in assets. For many years in a row, Southwestern Investment Group has been the number one ranked organization affiliated with Raymond James out of more than 1,700 firms worldwide. And yet it didn't always have that tremendously lofty position in the marketplace. It got started back in the year 2002 by the individual that we're chatting with today, Mr. Jeff Dobines, who was by himself in the midst of one of the worst recessions that had hit. It was a tech bubble that had just burst and Jeff was getting ready to start this business. So Jeff Dobines, welcome to the Action Catalyst. Hey, Dan, good to talk with you. I'm so thankful to be here. Well, this is fantastic. I know that our listeners would love to know sort of the the steps, the evolution of the business and how things happen. Do you, do you mind maybe talking about some of the things that put you on the path, maybe back in college, how you got interested in becoming an investment advisor, intermediate stops you made before you kind of came back here to us? Yeah, I'd love to. I uh, can still remember the night at my house, my cousin, who was uh, a Southwestern bookseller, quite a bit older than me, and he was telling me all about Southwestern and selling books door to door. And he said, uh, Jeff, I'm going to now go into the investment business. And I've interviewed with all these big investment firms. And Merrill Lynch has asked me to come on board, which back then was this, the you reached it if you had a job with Merrill Lynch. And so I can remember being a 17-year-old student in high school and said, man, I really want to work in the investment business, and I'd love to work at Merrill Lynch someday. So my cousin Kyle said, well, Jeff, if that's the case, you need to sell books door-to-door for four summers while you're in college. And so I didn't know exactly what that meant, but I did know that I wanted to be in the investment business. Uh, so I signed up to sell books uh, after my freshman year in college. Okay. And you were at Ohio University, which is definitely the Harvard of uh, Athens, Ohio. <laughs> Did you did you study business there? I did. I uh, was in the finance uh, program, and I can remember you coming to meet with me in my sophomore year of school, telling me to get my grades up and to study a little harder. Out, all I wanted to do was study Dale Carnegie and Zig Ziglar and learn how to sell more books and learn how to get uh, prepared for the investment world. But you told me I needed to work on my studies a little bit more. So those were some good times, and I was grateful for your mentorship. Well, coachability is one of your great hallmarks, Jeff, and that's been fantastic. Well, after you graduated, I think you got involved with a very small business in your home state of Ohio. Can, can you share what happened there briefly and then how that led to reconnecting here? Yeah, it was really just a just a really an unbelievably great opportunity. I thankfully did listen to my cousin Kyle sold books with Southwestern for four years, and it was true. I had opportunities to work with all the big investment firms, so... Edward Jones and Merrill Lynch in particular were the two that uh, I was really highly considering and was going to go work with uh, probably Merrill Lynch. Uh, But at the time, I had a family friend who owned a CPA firm 
in Ohio in, in the in the 90s, a lot of CPAs were trying to get in the investment business. They had been doing tax preparation for their clients for years. And they, there was a movement for CPAs to, to start doing investments. And so family friend owned a great mid-sized CPA practice, been in business 30 years. He was a CPA plus an MBA, PhD in tax. And he said, Jeff, if you could do that book thing, then I know you could really help me start and launch this investment business that I'd like to do with my tax practice. And so, you know, that was a good, uh, I reflect on that because I had the opportunity to go work with the big boys who I'd been dreaming of doing for years, or I had an opportunity to kind of start something from scratch, but I had a great mentor, although he wasn't technically in the investment business, he had been working with clients and understood what it was like to be in the service industry and to serve people well. And I always felt like I could go back and do those Merrill Lynch, uh, Edward Jones jobs if it didn't work out. And so in 1997, I, uh, I partnered with a CPA practice in Ohio, 22 years old, and I would meet with their tax clients and try to help them do financial planning for their retirements. Got it. And then I know there was uh, something of a falling out regarding future involvement in that business up there. And you found yourself uh, really dissatisfied and starting to look look elsewhere. How, what then transpired? Yeah, you know, uh, it was one of those things, Dan, where a lot of small business owners, I think, struggle with and kind of transitioning uh, ownership and empowering new people. And so, you know, within a couple of years, we had become one of the largest producers within the uh, investment organization that we were affiliated with. And, and I was running and gunning and doing really well at 26 years old. I think we were the top half of a percent or so of all these investment folks affiliated with this brokerage firm at the time. But I really wanted to kind of be a partner and have a uh, an impact on the direction of the company. And I think uh, my mentor just really felt like I was young and, and he was older and he had built this business. And I thought he was going to kind of transition that ownership and partnership to me. And I just didn't see that happening, unfortunately. And so a good indication that it, that uh, a lesson there, I think, is that uh, when you're trying to build an organization, you really do have to kind of stick to what you tell folks you're going to do and empower them and, and allow them to grow. And I've seen a lot of small businesses have a hard time doing that. And so that was an example where I just said, okay, this isn't going to work, but I was able to have a lot of good mentors and family around and said, Jeff, this is not probably going to be that where you're going to be for the next 30 years. So it would be wise to take a, a full court press and really evaluate your options. So actually went to Alaska. I had a, what they deemed at the time a quarter life crisis. So I went to Alaska, lived in a camper with three Marine recon men and worked on a, a business plan of what I was going to do next. And gratefully, Peter Foray and you, Dan, and several others at Southwestern said, hey, Jeff, we'd really like to get serious about starting an investment company. You know, Southwestern had, for 30, 40 years, had a lot of really top talented folks leave the book business and go work at Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley, Edward Jones, Northwestern Mutual. And we thought maybe we could do that internally and provide those guys a great opportunity to stay within the company. And so I, uh, I moved down here uh, in, to Nashville in 2002 really with the goal of partnering with Southwestern and really trying to build a, a large investment company. And so here we are 16 years later, and I'm so thankful for how it's turned out. I think it's awesome. And the mission statement that you started with, because I remember those conversations, was not to be a bullpen environment where there's 150 to 200 calls a day to very high net worth individuals. 
but instead to help everybody move forward and in, in toward achieving dignity and retirement and their financial goals. And even now your philosophy, if I understand it correctly, is to improve financial lives so that people can focus on the things that are most important to them personally, professionally, and spiritually. It is a profound mission that you're embarked upon and you were on it from the very beginning. But the real question is, how did you get started? You, you came here with a few acquaintances. You didn't have any prospects per se. What was the process of you being a sole practitioner, the only producer, and trying to build something that could become a visionary type investment firm? Well, the fortunate thing was, is I hadn't lost any money for clients in the tech bubble burst yet because uh, I was just starting the business in 2002. So people had just gotten rocked in the in the investment world and I was able to really be proactive and it was really interesting at that time I was able to just meet with a lot of people I didn't have necessarily a quota or goal or an agenda that I had to hit I just wanted to go out and try to serve p people well and thankfully the company really had a lot of, of uh, faith in the fact that this was going to be a long-term objective and that we didn't need to rush into things and so I spent those first uh 12 months just meeting with as many people as I could, digging in and diving into their situation. And a lot of people I could do uh, uh, help with. Uh, my, my training with Southwestern was great. The background I had with the CPA practice was really helpful of saying, hey, these people really need help and they don't want to be sold something. And so I love the fact that we were independent. We didn't have a product we had to push. We could really offer truly comprehensive financial planning and then go to the marketplace to find the best tool to solve their need. And that was something that I really learned at the CPA practice was independence, allegiance only with the client was really a valuable mission. And so thankfully within uh, six or 12 months, we were able to start getting some traction and then started having some partnerships with uh, with a couple banks, a couple uh, community banks, a couple CPA firms, and then also Dave Ramsey's organization. And so those folks would refer people to me and because I didn't have a whole lot of clients to focus on, I was able to really super serve those folks well and spend the time and energy and effort to help them develop a good plan. And so that the word of mouth kind of started to spread that we were a, a group that could be trusted to refer people that you love to uh, to develop a good sound financial plan. I think it's it's amazing. Not long ago, I saw a 2000 year old aqueduct in France that was built by the Romans and they built it exactly the way you built Southwest Investment Group literally one stone at a time and being careful with what was done with that one stone. And that leads to more and more and more and something that is absolutely tremendous. Now, at some point you knew you really wanted to grow and that is the crucial step in making the transition to adding people. When did you know it was time to do that? How did you go about doing that so that you could keep your focus on your existing clients and your relationships with your referral partners at the same time, nurture and develop and train a new person? I think a mentality that's really been a key to my success and, and what we've been able to do at Southwestern Investments is I always knew that we needed to approach us like a business plan. And so you know, my, I always compare my my dad was a small town attorney. And so he and his business partner were able to really accomplish the American dream. They had a law firm that they've started from scratch after law school. And 30, 40 years later, they were able to sell it to some younger attorneys. But I think about the scale of that uh, is slow and painful because every time they wanted to hire a new attorney, I can just remember that, you know, that was something my mom and dad had to really think about and say, gosh, do we have the budgeted funds to pay for that computer and that uh, office space and to pay the salary for that person? And so it was a very 
personal and challenging decision every time you wanted to hire somebody. And so the blessing we've had is it was as much more analytical and the game plan was to grow. So we had the vision of what we were trying to accomplish. We knew it would take money and investment and time, but that was the, that was the whole objective. And so thinking a little differently as opposed to uh, an individual business owner, but saying this makes sense. It's a formula. We're going to hire people. And of course it's going to cost a little bit of money and sometimes it's not going to work out. But if we are slow and deliberate with how we go through the hiring process, train them really well, find really good people, then it's going to make sense and, and work well. And so you know, when I compare ourselves to these other Raymond James folks who I really admire and appreciate so much, I think of them kind of a, akin to my dad and his law partners. That the reason why we were able to scale is we really had a vision to do that and we weren't afraid to work the plan. Whereas uh, it's hard for a, a business owner to sometimes make that transition to, to that investment because it doesn't always work out. And so when it doesn't, you just have to go back to the drawing board, figure out how you're going to make some tweaks, but not not give up on that objective. Right. And when did you add your second person after you guys started in 2002 as sort of a solo act? I think uh, within that first uh, eight months or so, we started to get some traction, started to have some clients. And I said, you know what, I could bring in another person. Now it's going to take a little while to get them trained, but uh, it was another Southwestern guy. So he knew how to make phone calls and make introductions, make presentations, but he didn't know anything about the investment business. But what we were able to do is really kind of have this mentorship program where he would kind of sit in my hip pocket. We'd go to meetings together. We'd debrief afterwards. He would do the follow-up, and then we'd communicate on the next steps. And so within a uh, six- or 12-month period, we were able to do that three other times. And so we had four of us that were out there now uh, multiplying. And, uh, and and really, that mentorship strategy has been a key to our success. Now, 16 years later, we're still doing that uh, with every new person that we that we bring on board. So that shadowing process where they are right there with you for extended periods of time learning, and then you could comment in between those presentations and some of it, they just pick up by watching you. Would you say that's one of the real keys you developed a track to run on? You modeled it. They watched you do it. Then you helped them apply it. I think that's it. I've got two quick stories if we have time that I think might, sure. might illustrate this. Is uh, I have a good buddy of mine that works for a major firm. I won't mention the name, but he was going to do a partnership with a guy that had been in the business 30 years, wildly successful. And so my friend Jason was going to partner with him for six to 12 months and then go start his own division of that outfit. And so after he was uh, in the business for three, four months, I said, Jason, how many meetings have you sat in with Larry since Larry's been there 30 years? He's got a wildly successful practice and he literally is about four feet away through a wall in the, in the uh, office next door. And he said, Jeff, I've never seen Larry in a meeting, never heard him on the telephone. I've never seen him interact with clients. And that just seemed like such a shame. What a wasted opportunity for a person to be able to observe 10, 20, 30, 40, 100 meetings and interactions with clients from somebody who's been doing it their whole life and is really good at it. And unfortunately, I feel like that put my friend, you know, back a few years because he just had to go out and learn those lessons on his own. And then another friend of ours who named Josh, who also worked for Southwestern, went to an investment firm here. And I called him after he was at that company for six or seven months and said, hey, Josh, how are you doing? So, well, I've been studying all day up on college plans, 529 plans. I'm really trying to learn about those because I have a meeting tomorrow with the prospect and I'm trying to find out which one of the 50 state plans is best for this particular client. And I said, Josh, isn't there anybody in your office that would be willing to share a few minutes of what they've been doing and what's helped them be successful so that way you could reduce your 
time and actually have more appointments and help more people. And, and he said, no, there's not. And unfortunately, that guy's now out of the business and didn't work out. And I just see those examples of people that are really sharp, are desirous to grow, and they're sponge-like, but they just don't have a mentor that's willing to spend a little time and energy with them. And so our whole mission is to be kind of do the opposite of that, really allow people the runway and the, you have to have some margin. You have to be able to compensate them because they're not going to add value right away to the to the business. But long term, they're going to excel because something I learned from my old mentor, Craig Soder, your friend, uh, 25 years ago, was every time that you delay something, uh, you don't actually uh, ever really accomplish that towards the end of, until your end of your career. And so if you're scaling, but you wait two or three years, you're going to miss those last two or three years when you're really producing on all levels. And so. My whole mission has been how do we try to accelerate that rate of growth? And the way to do that is to shorten the training. And, and the best way to do that, in my opinion, is one-on-one mentorship. Jeff, one of the incredible insights that I just picked up from that is your awareness that when the plan is a long-term plan and you're willing to work the plan, then you try to get your ego out of the way. I really think sometimes uh, business owners or top producers really don't want anybody watching them because they're afraid that they will then become an intense competitor or steal their ideas or somehow worm in on the action. You took exactly the opposite approach, and that was, no, no, if we want to grow, we must grow early, we must grow in the right way, and the most effective way to do that is for me to literally open my heart, open my mind, open my processes so people can see what I'm doing. That is a phenomenal insight, and uh, it helped you massively, and I think the unselfishness comes through in a big way there, and it's coming back to you. Well, thank you. I think uh, that's another, you know, I hate to keep bringing up Southwestern, but that was a lesson I learned. Uh, two two interesting points there, Dan, is one, I can remember when I was flailing uh, selling books one summer and I uh, had an opportunity to go follow a guy named Ryan Rutherford, who was just a real, I'd heard about Ryan for three years, how, what an incredible salesperson he was, how great he is. He was he just memorized, mesmerized clients and they just bought, you know, throw up their checkbook and bought everything he had. So I drove six hours and went to follow Ryan for the day. And I kind of left that day because we didn't sell hardly anything. And he wasn't that uh, impressive. <laughs> yeah. And I said, gosh, I can do that. Uh, there's, I think I had a, a mental block that Ryan was able to do these m- magical things that uh, only he could do and I could never learn to do. And that was a really profound lesson for me. I went back actually in the following three days of that week, I had the best production I've ever had in a full week I did in three days. And I really just removed some mental blocks that I actually was capable to do well and that that I had the skills. And, and, and so just seeing that sometimes is really helpful. But also the lesson was that Ryan was willing and interested and cared enough about helping me grow, even though he received no compensation. He wasn't part of my organizational structure, but he knew that he would do better uh, as a salesperson if he had a young guy come follow him. And I'm convinced that part of the reason why we've been so successful now is uh, all of our advisors are uh, having the same approach to training young people and new guys in the business. And so that's helped everybody grow. You know, they always say that that the way that you really learn is by teaching. And so I think our guys have excelled in in our world because we've spent quite a bit of time on the teaching component and uh, it makes everybody sharper. I love that. The best way to learn is to teach. I completely agree. Kind of fast forwarding now because that was so instructive how you got things going today. 
you've got literally dozens of associates. You have producers that are magnificent. Sometimes when you look at how much they're producing, they produce more than entire firms do as individuals. And yet they're very involved here with what you do. You've got key support roles. You have people in compliance because, of course, the investment business is a heavily regulated business. But every year since you started, no matter how many people you've added, you have been the number one personal producer. Nobody has ever produced more than you. So, Jeff, this is the key question here. What have you been able to do that lets you produce leading volumes of revenue yourself while also spending time developing a team that is thriving and growing? Well, I've been really fortunate, number one. Uh, I've got some really, really good folks that that work at my personal team that, that are day-to-day in the trenches helping us serve clients. So I think that's been something as I've been willing to spend the, the money and the time and energy to invest in folks to work directly with me to help us service clients. We have some really sharp advisors and, and key support staff that are able to do a lot of the work that when I look at my peers in the industry, they have to maintain all of those things. And, and again, kind of going back to that, the difference of a small business mentality versus really scaling is I just have to be willing. And thankfully, we have the capacity and the people and, and the support to have more of a corporate feel and not, not in a bad way, a corporate feel, but a corporation that can actually handle things like a CFO role and a chief compliance officer and HR and logistics with office space and all those things that you have to do when you're running a, a small business like we are. We, we've been able to have people that can come along and really specialize and be good at that. And then, you know, something I, I don't like to admit necessarily, but it's true, is that I've not really ever been good at management. I think I've been good at leadership ship, which is, there's a, obviously a big difference. And so we made a decision early on, which I think has been really helpful to this point is to not focus so much on management, but to really just lead by example. You know, our old mentor, Spencer Hayes used to say that, uh, you can't lead where you won't go. And what is it, Dan? You can't teach what you don't know and you can't lead where you won't go. go. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, I'm constantly at the forefront of trying to learn how to do this business better because I spend the majority of my time time doing this business. And so it really makes it easy on the management side because uh, I just get to share what I'm doing every day and what our team is doing to grow our business with the other folks in our organization that are trying to do the same thing. So they're not distracted trying to figure out what they need to do to be successful because they're just a year or two or three behind where we are. And so that's been really fun. They can just kind of do what I'm doing and I'm out there trying to figure out what the folks that are doing better than me are doing. And so we're really trying to do more of this mentorship and leadership role and really not having much in the role of, of management. Right, right. Now, from a different perspective, Jeff, anytime you look at a business that has grown as rapidly and has prospered as much as yours has, it can sometimes be tempting to say, well, they must have missed a lot of the bumps in the road. They haven't had a lot of the obstacles. They probably haven't ever had anybody quit or leave. And I happen to know that that's not the case. You've definitely had your share of setbacks and your business has taken some blows. You also operate in a highly regulated environment where with the signing of a pen in Washington, D.C., everything changes in what you do as well as all the other investment firms. So when you face setbacks, when you, when you face problems, what has been your normal thought process or mindset? And, and what could you share for our listeners in general uh, about how to recover from something that may not just be a bump in the road? It could actually be an enormous sinkhole that can swallow the Corvette Museum if you let it. 
Well, that's a great question. And I think that um, we've tried to have kind of this steady hand on the wheel and realize we're trying to build something for uh, the next 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And so there's going to be lots of bumps in the road and we can't see what is coming around the corner. But we do feel like if we can stay focused on serving people well, training people well and treating people well, then, you know, everything does kind of tend to to work out. And so um, it's been really at times challenging when we've had personnel issues and We've had legislative issues that have required an exorbitant amount of work from support staff, reforms, and all this changes of uh, operations that our business oftentimes requires. But I think we've tried to maintain that mission that we really are making an impact on people, on their lives. People rely on us to, to provide this advice and that we want to really have an obligation to do the right thing and to serve them well. And if we focus on that primarily, but of course, we also have to have folks that, that do the the other parts of it, of the business in order to keep our doors open. But I think with that long-term perspective and just taking things day by day and recognizing that uh, there are obviously going to be bumps in the road, the next 10 years are going to look differently than the past 10 years. But we just try to be a little bit more steady. And I think that having folks around the leadership group. And so we have a whole team of leaders that we meet with on a regular basis within the company and then also outside the company to bounce ideas off of and to provide some encouragement and support when we're getting a little agitated or frustrated and need some some guidance. So that's that's something I would really recommend is I've been in coaching my whole career and uh, and, and it's oftentimes two or three different types of coaching programs at once, which I, I can imagine for some people that seems like that'd be a little overkill, but gosh, it always is good to get uh, feedback from somebody that uh, really cares about you and has a vested interest in your business. So whether it's consultants or coaching or leadership board or client advisory board, always looking for encouragement, feedback, uh, accountability. I think uh, too many of us try to operate in a vacuum, and that's uh, that's a scary, dangerous place to be. And so I've just always felt like I have an obligation to try to get constant feedback and input from people that, that really care about our success. Which, again, is a reflection of your own humility, Jeff, because many highly successful people aren't that receptive to external advice. And yet, in my experience, the most successful people, such as yourself, not only are open to external advice, they seek it. Because there's an old phrase that our mutual mentor years ago, Jerry Heffel, used to say, and that is that no one can be objective about themselves. And so to get that advice from outside is so important. So kind of to summarize how you, how you deal with that, you remind yourself first, and then you remind your team, let's concentrate on the purpose, not the problem. Would you say that's an accurate summation? I think that's brilliant. Well, I think you're brilliant. So it's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's here's kind of another another aspect. We talked about overcoming problems. In just about all walks of life, it doesn't really matter what it is, it's possible for people to hit a really powerful stride. In other words, they are succeeding maybe beyond their wildest dreams, and they kind of hit a level of satisfaction. And at that moment, they stop pushing themselves. They say to themselves, I have arrived, even though there's a lot more that could happen. So I'm really curious, Jeff, from a personal income standpoint, from a business success standpoint, from an equity standpoint in Southwestern family of companies, you have done extraordinarily well. But what have you found to be effective to, first of all, keep yourself from falling prey to the disease known as satisfied itis? And what do you do in mentoring and leading people to help them avoid that tendency too? 
Well, I think uh, that's probably where I spend a lot of my time and energy is trying to, to figure that out. And I think um, trying to have a higher purpose about what you're trying to accomplish. And, and so for years, I've been involved with several organizations that, that are doing amazing work and they need they need money. And uh, so one of my motivators is to say, how can we do better as a group? How can we do better as a family? How can I do better financially so we can support friends that are out there doing impactful work that they need people to provide some resources with. So I think part of our obligation and, and Dave Ramsey, who I'm longtime friends with says, Hey, when you're pouring in your cup and it fills, you got, you want to keep working and keep pouring because of that those fruits can go bless other people. And so I really feel like, uh, fortunately we were able to hit that stride. And so, but there's always needs. There's always people that need more that, that we can help support. And I feel like, the proverbs of uh, or the thought process of, of, of who much is given, much is expected. And so I think we try to preach that to our team to say, God bless us with a lot of resources, a lot of uh, skills, a lot of opportunity. We need to make the best of it. So I think trying to stay involved with organizations that have huge needs helps remind us that we, we've got more to do. And then I think this concept, again, of kind of this mentorship partnership deal. So I've got young folks that are really, really talented that rely on the success of my personal work ethic and success to feed their family and to put their kids in school and to help their retirement. And so they're, they're relying on me. And so I, I feel like I've got an obligation. So having those younger people that are motivated and inspiring around uh, really pushes everybody in, in our organization the same way. And so it is interesting. We have some really top producers uh, in our average production for advisors is just off the charts. But there's always, uh, you know, we, we, we show the scoreboard a lot. So there's not a meeting that we have where we don't show how everybody's doing compared to everybody else. And so there's always a motivation to to get better because if, if we're not getting better, then somebody else is going to catch us either internally or within uh, our peer group or within our community. And so an obligation to do well. And then also, I think this uh, competitive spirit to say, you know what, there's others out there that are that I'm involved with that are doing a lot better than I am. So I've got a long way to go. That is so incredible, Jeff. Um, the basic theme of what you said is in a world of needs, there are some people that can help provide and fill those needs. And so you let that drive you and knowing that your subordinates are depending upon you also drives you. And then finally that natural, healthy, fun competition. And from being in a lot of your meetings, I know there's plenty of banter that goes on, but it's uh, it's never demeaning. It's always in the intention of we're going to fulfill this mission. And oh, by the way, I will beat you this year, but it's all for a good reason. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, we, we know from dealing with people that uh, people are, are totally imperfect, but perfect principles can help everybody get better. What would you say are, are some summaries of principles of leadership or success that you keep coming back to? over and over and over again. Well, I think there's a, there's quite a few that we were just gleaned uh, as, you know, when we were selling books and working uh, with Southwestern and, and a lot of those come back to this idea that we really want to serve people really well. I think that uh, I've got a, um, a, a couple signs on my desk here and one of them says work hard to serve others. So I think that's a, a mission that we really want to do. I've got an obligation to, to work hard and I've got an obligation to, to serve others. And then there's another one that says, it's okay be a, to be afraid, just do it anyway. So I look at that sign every morning when I sit down at my desk. And so there's uh, you know, obviously things that, uh, that we need to do that we don't like to do. And 
our objective is to try to knock those out and accomplish something every day that I didn't want to do that was hard or challenging. And, and then I think the idea of uh, the, this concept that really have an obligation to try to slow down and help one of the other folks in our organization on a daily basis. And so that's something that I, that I'm not perfect at, but I really do strive because I uh, it wasn't that many years ago that I was that guy. And, and I think all of us remember when we're in something that's a little challenging, whether it's a football coach or a teacher or a mentor or a friend that was able to come alongside and say, Hey, you're, you're doing great. Keep it up. And how can I help you when you're that person and somebody really reaches out to you, that can make a huge impact on your day and your week and your month and your career. And so we try to spend some time doing that with our with our folks in the office uh, and within our organization just to, to let everybody know that we're in this together and that we're available to help them anytime they need it. Oh, that is fantastic. And those principles, I know, extend also to, to your life with you and Amy and, and the family. Now, I'm trying to remember, have you got a four-person rowing team at home or a five-person basketball team? Well, we've got a four-person rowing team. To, so we've got a 10-year-old, <laughs> 9-year-old, and then twins that are five twins they were given to you by god just to see how resilient you are (laughs) (laughs) but but i also know that you're very committed to that you've made some hard and fast rules about being there for the family at these key events and that's tremendously admirable uh how do you how do you work the balance it's a never-ending challenge i know it is and you know i think probably four or five years ago i felt like uh I was coming to the realization that I wasn't going to be Superman anymore, which was a little scary that I think I, that I even thought I was Superman. But I think for first 15 years of starting this company, I felt like I was Superman, was working a lot and was re- realizing that I didn't want to screw up the kids. Uh, but I wasn't going to be and I didn't want to script the company, but I wasn't sure how well that was going to work out with uh, taking care of my health and taking care of Amy. And so I actually went through a again, I've, I've been in coaching and in group therapy for years, but I went to a, a halftime institute here in Nashville, which is an organization for f- folks. And I was the youngest person in the group, but it was really the, the mission was how to move from success to significance. And I still had a long way to go on the success side, but I really wanted to start thinking about what, what significance I was making and not just in the business. And so that, uh, that made me realize, you know, there, there is a time to take your foot off the pedal and to, to be sure that I was, taking care of my health and taking care of uh, my family. But also at the same time, the way I could do that really well without messing up the company was to empower and hire folks to help do a lot of the stuff that I was doing when I was first founding the company. And so that's allowed us, it's really been neat because we have a lot of leaders that have stepped up to take over all the roles that I used to do. And obviously I wasn't doing it all very well. One person can't do it all. And so we have some really, really talented people that are doing all these different aspects of our company now and they, they love it. They're really good at it and they, uh, they're skilled, skilled and, and it allows me to, uh, to focus on uh, work at times and then also on our family and my health at, at other times. So it's been really neat. And I think, Dan, that was a huge transition to kind of realize I couldn't do it on my own of running the company. I needed to have other people that would take those positions. But when we first got started, we had kind of this mantra, we were going to be really a lean, mean fighting machine. And so we didn't want to have a lot of bureaucratic management roles, but you know, what got us to this point is not going to get us to where we want to go in the future. And so we're kind of in this, season now of saying, hey, we really have to be willing to bring in people that are better at things like operations and facilities things and 
even recruiting and training and HR. And um, so there's a lot of things that we continue to scale in order for us to recognize that there's a lot smarter people out there that are, are talented at these roles. And we need to let them do that so we can focus on our core competencies. And that is a phenomenal way to go about it. A lot of the listeners right now are facing pretty significant setbacks in their own businesses or their organization, and they just can't see how to get around them. I know you've mentioned that third-party input from coaches and people that can be objective about it can really help. But any other ideas on just helping people get unstuck if they've just hit a point where they just don't know how to grow or they just can't get past the obstacle they're facing? I know it's difficult without specifics, but do you have any general observations on that? Yeah, and I I think that uh – what I've always felt like is I, I do have to kind of get some feedback. And so I'd hate to say that, that, that these third parties are the only solution, but I really do feel like, and to your point about Jerry's expression of uh, it's, it's hard to understand a best way out of it when you're just working your tail off to try to stay afloat. And so we have to make a commitment to be willing to work on the business at times and more time actually than we think we should. And uh, as opposed to just working in the business. And so for a lot of folks that are running companies and organizations, the natural tendency uh, and the, what helped you get successful is you had to work in the business because nobody else was, was there to do the work. But as you scale and the longer you're in the business, you recognize that you've got to work on the business. Otherwise it'll kind of run you. And so I think you're, you're, you have to be able to get back and not just tread water, but actually take a little bit of rest and, and reflection. And I think it's interesting how you can step back when you feel like you should still be rowing really hard and actually reflect a bit. You can actually glean. Uh, and sometimes you, uh, you know, the right answer, you just have to have a little bit of time to think through it. And so this whole idea that we just need to run a million miles an hour, I don't know where we got that idea from, but somehow that was ingrained in me as well. And uh, I think over the last four or five years, I realized that that's not healthy. Right now, I'm just a bit obsessed, Dan, with uh, Elon Musk, and I'm sure you've been reading and hearing some of his uh, quotes. But you know, uh, what helped him be so successful is really impressive. But sleeping on the factory floor and saying if he wasn't working 100 hours a week, who else would do it? You can just see signs of a guy that's obviously going to burn out at some point. He's going to crash and burn because you just can't sustain that. And so you'd love for somebody to be able to pull up alongside of him and say, Hey, we can have some other really smart people. We, we need you. We need your intelligence. We need your vision, but let some of us other folks execute. So now that I'm, I'm a little more cognizant of that, I think it's interesting to see that play out in, uh, internationally with the Elon Musk situation, but then you'll start to notice it even in your day to day world. And so being willing to step back, I think is a, is a hard thing to do, but there's no other way around it. I think it's fantastic. Stephen Covey always said, succeed at home first. And there is a tremendous amount of that that happens in the life of the Dobines family. Oh, thank you. Jeff, Jeff, I I don't know what else will happen over the course of my next several days, but I know nothing will be more inspiring than the time I've spent with you. Any final comments that you'd like to make and and share with our amazing listeners? Well, I really appreciate you, Dan. You know how much admiration and respect and you're an incredible person and you're incredibly talented. And uh, I'm grateful for 24, 25 years of you uh, uh, incorporating that same encouragement and mentorship I was trying to describe earlier that I'm trying to do for other people. So thanks for doing that for me for, for all these years. Well, you're welcome. It sounds like you're a pretty old guy when you use those big numbers. <laughs> Time does fly. I'll tell you that. God bless. Talk to you soon. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, 
Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.